I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome back to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech. It's been a few weeks, you know, July kind of uh, summer hiatus, but that did not slow down the big tech transgressions and, might I add, the great awakening uh, that is happening in the United States and around the world about the overstepping of big tech monopolies and big government. I mean, everyone's just doing a power grab these days, but we're seeing it play out very interestingly. And, uh, and it might seem like dark days, but I keep your head high because we're winning this battle. So uh, first topic is going back to not a big tech monopoly. And that's our favorite misconstrued platform to beat up on. Yes, you called it Netflix. Netflix had their earnings come out past couple of weeks here. Big miss had some positives and some negatives. And then they said, oh, yeah, we're going into gaming like that instilled confidence in, in their investors. You know, we've talked about Netflix's stock for a while, just kind of being it's up, it's down. It's basically just flat. Um, it's not doing anything unlike the rest of the market. You know, Platt here is eight, nine percent. Netflix, on the other hand here, you know, you can see the headline misses earnings expectations and talks about gaming. I mean, we've talked about multiple platform opportunities, just low hanging fruit in front of Netflix. How can they embrace that dirty word in media called user generated content, which they have um, at every waking hour continued to ignore and poo poo and not embrace where every one of the big tech monopolies uh, is actively embracing it from Amazon to uh, Google, obviously. So Netflix is talking about getting into gaming and, and um, you know, diversifying content in a linear manner. I mean, we've called this for years now that Netflix is a linear business. They're just a linear digital uh, movie studio. Uh, the competition will eventually catch up. And now it has, I think maybe a couple episodes ago, I broke down, you know, where HBO Max and Peacock and you know, all the other competitive video streaming services stand and Disney plus. And you know what, you know, the field starts to look very similar, very quickly. That differentiator that Netflix had where they were really the only game in town. Yeah. They're definitely not the only game in town and the act is getting uh, played out. Gaming is not, I, I don't think gaming is the move. Uh, they could still get into user generated content in a big way and really build a defensible moat. You need that supply side network effect. You can't just beat up on aggregator theory and say, yes, we're just going to capture all the demand. You need that defensibility when you have five plus of the biggest companies in the world aggressively competing against you. So will Netflix do anything differently? Probably not. When you look at Reed Hastings succession planning and um, you know who he's putting into power, it's not saying, yeah, we need to innovate and 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 embrace new digital business models. That's not the positioning and signaling that Netflix is is providing to investors. So, next topic is another linear business that is lacking, and that is Robinhood. Here is the real problem with Robinhood and Vlad, their CEO and co-founder. Vlad sold out. And I'm not talking about the IPO. I'm talking about, you know, Robinhood was built, the whole thing was to support small investors. And what happened with the whole meme stocks and the, you know, meme stock ban and all these things was 
the institution, the system, the man basically like tripled or quintupled the capital requirement from Robinhood because of, you know, volatile trading on these meme stocks. And what Vlad failed to say was that the requisite increase in the capital requirement from Robinhood, which then forced Robinhood and other of these kind of like discounted clearing firms to impose trading restrictions on meme stocks, was out of the ordinary and unnecessary. And that they didn't get the right visibility from the regulators and that it just didn't make sense, right? And the reason why the regulators did this is because guess who sits on the board of the regulators? All the big banks. Guess who uh, was burned by the meme stock investors cramming down the short sellers, the big banks and their customers, right? So this was definitely a story where the system exerted downward pressure on Robinhood and others. And that in turn forced Robinhood in order for them to reduce the capital requirement uh, that they had to pay to the regulator, they imposed these trading restrictions on the stocks as a compromise. And then they were able to reduce, it was still a triple, triple the capital requirement they were used to putting up, um, you know, with a 24 hour notice, but it was even more than that had they not negotiated these trading restrictions. Right. So either, you know, you had a couple options. One, keep full trading activity and go and sell an arm and a leg uh, to comply with the capital requirements or capitulate, still pay an extortionate amount of capital requirement increase cast out on the regulators and their reasoning and justification for why they uh, had these extraordinary requests for capital uh, on, yes, increased volume trading, but on like four stocks, which would not require that amount of additional capital, right? So instead of Vlad doing any of that, he protected the regulators. He defended the regulators. He said it was oh entirely reasonable what they did. And then he was asked, well, what is the calculation that the regulators use to determine the capital requirement that they send over to Robinhood every, every morning? And he said, oh, well, I don't know. But he still defended them. And that was the problem. That was the point of Vlad selling out um, the people which he and the team had built the company around, which was supposed to empower and enable the small guys, right? The small investors. And he sold them up the river or down the river, whatever the analogy is. And um, he knows, he knows that must have eaten away a little bit of his heart. Had he done that, even just a little bit, you know, it's a tough line to walk. If you walk the line too aggressively, then the regulators could (laughs) do a lot more damage to your business. Um, But he didn't need to cover up for them the way he did. And he sold out. And that's where he sold out. And now what you see is Robinhood surges 50% in second day of wild trading, up 100% this week. The chickens have come home to roost, baby. And now they're playing games with Robinhood stock. So Robinhood on opening day was actually down on closing from from where they opened at. Now, if you look at the past few days here, what's happening to Robinhood stock, you can see uh, this thing spiking aggressively, right? And so now I think the, the meme stock powers that be are coming for Robinhood. And Robinhood 
deserves every little cent of short seller action of of you know whatever hardships come to them uh they deserve it because at the end of the day look at 60 60 billion market cap company i mean are you serious um this is a uh linear business with a wonky business model of generating revenue by getting cut in on the action from the citadels of the world because the citadels of the world are giving the Robinhood investors suboptimal strike prices on the trades they're performing. And the citadels are taking that spread and then giving Robinhood kickbacks. That's how Robinhood makes money. It's so like every step of the way you think about Robinhood's value prop to the small investor, their business model is literally by definition putting the small investor at a disadvantage. They prove it out in their actions when when the regulators are here and he has a moment or more than one moment to call it straight, jumps over hot coals to do them and protect them at every step of the way. Robin Hair, Robinhood shares are halted. Uh, looming short squeeze. Um, this company does not deserve the branding uh, that they try to put out there. They could have handled the situation very differently. So I enjoy seeing the meme army have some fun with, uh, with Robin Hood here. Um, so next one is uh, looking at social media 3.0. So what do I mean by this? Uh, I've talked about all these, you know, the, I was trying to figure out what's the name, right? You know, you think about like third wave, maybe it's third wave social media, social media 3.0, third wave social media, third wave coffee shops. You know, you had uh, the initial coffee shops, then you had Starbucks, and now you have these like nice boutique, you know, you get your nice cappuccino, um, you know, more independent, really nice espresso machine. Those third wave coffee shops, love those third wave coffee shops, by the way. Um, I'm talking about third wave social media 3.0. We've talked about it many times on the show, the up and coming echelon of free speech, privacy first, social media platforms, or could be social media, could be content platforms, uh, could be communication and messaging platforms. There's a whole slew of these uh, that are providing alternatives to the Starbucks of social media, which is Facebook and Google and uh, Twitter and fill in the blank, uh, list goes on. So Third wave social media platforms are doing quite well. We had the uh, co-founder and CEO of Library on the show. Look at this stat from Library. Um, How many new channels have joined Library in the last three months? Answer, a lot. Recent average daily uh, change, number of channels daily change. You can see massive spikes. You know, these are you know, net, net new additions, new channels that are being created. It's doing phenomenally well, hitting looks like 7,000 in one day here in late June. And um, recent average daily change, so adding about 1,300 new channels, right? So these are producers, if you think about it. 1,300 new producers spinning up shows um, across library, you know, basically YouTube competitive channels daily. Daily. This company, we had the CEO on the show. 
has not been able to raise money in three years because the SEC has gone after the CEO. Highly recommend uh, Jeremy Kaufman. Great guy. Go watch that interview. Uh, the, the SEC subpoenaed him three years ago and kept it under the wraps. So he couldn't even talk about it, but he had to disclose it to any prospective investors. So they had raised institutional money, um, single digit millions of dollars three years ago. And so because the SEC subpoenaed him because they said, hey, you have a token and uh, you know, you're, that token is now raising money from investors and you're breaking securities laws, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all this mumbo jumbo, we talk about it on the show, uh, on the interview. And so, you know, think about that. This company surviving on a shoestring budget for years, not really having a traditional means of, of, of capital, i.e. raising money from investors. The growth is insane. And you're seeing this across the board with other content platforms, social media platforms, the diaspora away from big tech social media platforms is real. It's accelerating. It's not slowing down. And you're seeing this not only in the US, you're now seeing this in India. India's government pushes coup app. Twitter lost their protection. Uh, you know, basically like Section 230 in the United States, they lost the equivalent of that in India. So the reason why Twitter lost their Section 230 privileges is because the government wanted more control over what speech existed on Twitter. Uh, kind of a catch-22. So Twitter did not do enough cleansing of information on Twitter in India to make the Indian government happy. So then they yanked away Twitter's Section 230 protections and have uh, now installed or are promoting an alternative to Twitter and called Coup. The irony in all of this is that Twitter has done this to themselves. And it's not just Twitter, it's, it's all these big US social media companies is they have waded into these waters, right? Instead of trying to be more neutral and to allow more speech rather than less, they have waded into the waters to be more like a publisher uh, than a platform. And as a result of that, have set the expectation for foreign governments like, Indi like India that regulating free speech is entirely appropriate on social media, which it is not appropriate. And as a result, the Indian government got grumpy with Twitter and said, you're not doing it the way we want you to do it. Therefore, we're yanking away your, your liability protections and we're going to promote, actively promote a competitive app to you, which is all kinds of hilarious. All of that to say that this was all brought upon big tech by, them, by their own doing. It was their decision to invest billions and billions of dollars into this. It was their decision to cross the chasm and actively, proactively limit free speech, kick off producers, uh, shadow ban posts. And they've been doing this for years. They've overstepped for years. They've gone after, it's not just political now, it transcends everything. It transcends now, uh, you know, politics, health, crypto. They've gone after the crypto community. They've gone after religious communities. And, and it just keeps going. And so we've documented this uh, so many times. And 
even if the Indian government is coming at it from a completely crazy perspective, it is still net net a positive thing to rein in big tech and to hold them more accountable. It's a very interesting example what India is setting to remove these effectively Section 230 protections. Um, There are many similar initiatives going on in the United States to try and do something similar. So uh, next topic is when Mark Laurie left Walmart, he's a Jet.com CEO, founder, he was at Walmart for a number of years, was heading up Walmart Marketplace, did a fantastic job doing that, has, has really put Walmart in a position to be a strong number two against Amazon. And his parting words, his parting advice to just in general Walmart and really anyone trying to compete against a big tech monopoly is you have to forge your own path. If Walmart were to try to copy everything that Amazon is doing, you'll always just be second fiddle. You need to basically take your strategy and how you navigate towards your vision and and what your vision is and make it your own. And wow, Walmart is living up to that. Certain actions I have not liked that Walmart's done, like lowering the barriers of entry for Chinese sellers to sell on Walmart Marketplace. But this decision is pure gold. Walmart's latest business, selling its e-commerce tech to other retailers. Walmart said it will sell the technology to it developed to allow shoppers to buy items online and pick up the purchases at the store. Walmart has partnered with Adobe to offer the suite. This one's, I'm not really sure how this one will work. Uh, partnered with Adobe to offer the suite of cloud-based services through a subscription. Small and mid-sized retailers also will be able to add products to Walmart's online marketplace with just a few clicks. Oh, surprise, surprise, right? This whole strategy is basically, you know, it's very similar to if you think about Shopify. Shopify is saying, hey, we're enabling small to mid-sized retailers with e-commerce technology and different tools and services, right? That's literally what Walmart just said they're doing. They're saying, hey, we built all this technology for ourselves. Kind of reminds you of, right, what Amazon did with AWS. Hey, we built all of this infrastructure, this tech stack for ourselves to run Amazon.com. Now let's compartmentalize it, rip it out and offer it as a service to other tech companies that want all of this, you know, cloud service infrastructure. This model will ultimately help Walmart get access to more inventory from these small and mid-sized retailers, right? So if Walmart is giving them tools to help power their e-commerce business, then Walmart's technology is going to have visibility on what? The inventory in these stores. And now Walmart is saying, hey, you're also going to very easily be able to click a button that says, add all your stuff to walmart.com. And so what Walmart's trying to do, right, is trying to expand that supply. They have tremendous demand coming in, trying to expand that supply, that endless aisle. That's why you see them loosening the rules with the Chinese sellers, which I don't like. They're trying to broaden that supply base and, and basically give away technology as a subsidy, we call that a product subsidy. So you give away technology. It's a classic platform uh, playbook. You give away the technology in exchange for access to the network, right? So we're going to give away technology. We're going to subsidize that technology cost, that value of, of the software. You know, if you were to pay SaaS fee for the software you're getting from Walmart, you should be paying way more. But Walmart's going to say, hey, we're going to subsidize that value. We're going to give you software and tools because 
we want to get access to your inventory. We want to bring that inventory and make you a producer on Walmart Marketplace. It's a fantastic strategic decision. How well they can execute with Adobe, not too sure how that'll go, but we'll see. So strategically, I like it. Execution, still TBD, how it actually goes. It actually rings similar to what our client did recently, Dot Foods, by buying this company called Shop Hero. And what does Shop Hero provide? Shop Hero provides tools, many e-commerce tools, to small independent grocers and and uh, grocery wholesalers. There is a a huge shift and acceleration of saying, how do do you enable the long tail of small to mid-sized retailers, whether you're Walmart, Shopify, or Shop Hero, which is more vertical specific around grocery? And then how can you leverage those tools to tap into the the products and the throughput going through that channel, right? What does Shopify talk about all the time? Shopify is really a SaaS business trying to become a platform business, which we've talked about many times on the show. And they talk about the GMV. They talk about how much throughput is flowing through Shopify's pipes. Now, Shopify hasn't completed the cycle to really become a platform business, but they have multiple platform business initiatives going on. At Shopify, they're very smart. Uh, They understand platform models. And they're trying multiple ways to to figure out their own platform vision. Really love this strategic decision by Walmart. I think it really shows the digital maturity that the team has in a post-Mark Lurie world. We'll see how the execution goes with Adobe. That kind of throws a wrench uh, into how all of this rolls out. But strategically, I like the direction and and the mapping back to bring more supply to Walmart.com. Last topic. So we've talked about multiple times the level of asset inflation. I mean, there's real inflation going on. We've talked about that on the show multiple times. Every month, uh, a new data point comes out to show that inflation is real. Inflation's not going away. I see it because the work we do in B2B distribution, I mean, this stuff has a lag time, right? So if the inflation isn't going away from the B2B distributors and the manufacturers who we work a lot with, then it's not going to go away from the consumers anytime soon, right? So it's a myth. It's not going away in September or whatever it is that people keep on, uh, you know, all these smart economists keep on espousing. Asset price inflation, everyone can agree there's asset price inflation. Uh, we have the chief economist of Lending Tree on the show, and I even got him to agree that there's asset price inflation. Keep that in mind because you got two things here on the VC standpoint. So really thought-provoking article here. Sam Lesson, this was like Zuckerberg's right-hand product guy for many years. Guy did pretty well for himself. His wife runs the information. So just FYI. Sometimes he writes some articles for his wife's publication called The Information. The end of venture capital as we know it is his article. Now let's read the intro. All seems to indicate that by 2022, for the first time, non-traditional tech investors, including hedge funds, mutual funds, and the like, will invest more in private tech companies than traditional Silicon Valley-style venture capitalists will. What is really happening is that capitalism is functioning as intended, and as it has worked throughout history, the era of West Coast-style venture capitalism and shaped by the growth of the software industry is coming to an end. 
In any new market, venture capitalists come in and provide very expensive, very expensive capital for high risk, high reward propositions at the frontier. So he's basically saying VC is no longer the frontier, right? Like tech startup investing is no longer the frontier. Over time, these investments in new industries become better understood and instrumented. That's true. Uh, Their risks and opportunities can be more easily measured and investors across the board price them more or less the same way. As these shifts occur, massive flows of capital follow and investors compete with each other to offer industry builders cheaper and cheaper money. (sighs) I don't know. Eh, I'm honest, I'm not buying it. It's just called entrepreneurship. VC, this, tech, that, whatever. You're building a new business. Whether it's a tech business or whatever it is, you're building a new business. It's hard. It's risky. Many new businesses don't make it. I don't know how you're going to slice that, but like, just because tech is more understood doesn't make it less risky. Right, which would which would then say, well, if it's less risky, then the capital should be less expensive. I think the thing that's missing in his analysis is the fact that we've printed ten trillion dollars. What happens when you print ten trillion trillion dollars? The dollar's gotta go somewhere. And that's what we've been covering on the show, which is that the dollars come from the big boy money players, like guess who? The people that he talks about at the top of this article, the hedge funds, mutual funds, private equity funds. And that money has been cramming down VC investors. We've shown you the charts. The average valuations in Q1 of 2021 are insane. Things are off the charts. And it is not just because like everyone in the, what I would call more like growth stage, PE, hedge fund, mutual fund world woke up one morning and said, you know, tech startup investing is just not that risky anymore because it's, it's 2021 and we really understand these businesses. Yeah, that definitely did not happen. What happened is we printed $10 trillion and these funds are looking for a place to put the money. And they're cramming down all the VCs. Yeah, you could say the explanation is probably somewhere in between. I think the explanation is more so leading to my end of the spectrum. Doesn't talk about $10 trillion in here at all. However, if you want to be a venture capitalist leading the next era, you should look for opportunities no one else is funding because they're too weird, too crazy, or too small. Great suggestion. Okay, so that's on one side of the VC spectrum. On the other side of the VC spectrum, we have our other favorite topic. I've not talked too much today about, which is China. And um, here's a really interesting thing as it relates to China. So CB Insights came out with their Q2 2021 VC report. I thought this was really interesting. This is China VC funding by quarter. You can see it peaking in Q4 of 2020. Uh, slightly declining in Q1, and then a pretty measurable decline in, in Q2. It's still above where the levels were, even way above where the levels were back in 2019. But when you compare this chart with how 
uh, VC investing has been going in other Western countries, even South America, the United States, Europe, Southeast Asia, India, Latin America, all those charts are still going up. So what we've seen is a trillion dollars in total market cap wiped off of the Chinese big tech monopolies. And, you know, talk about level of leveling the playing field with big tech. Don't need to ask the question on who's the bigger monopoly in China. It is the CCP, baby. Don't you ever forget it. They are wholesale just banning apps in the app store like DD. DD is now rumored that they might go private. What? Um, they are. They just banned uh, for-profit tutoring marketplaces, which another guest of ours, Fritz Demopoulos, billionaire, like co-founded the basically like kayak Expedia of uh, China. He had a big investment in one of the leading tutoring marketplaces. That thing literally just got nuked, literally labeled defunct. You cannot have a for-profit tutoring business in China. Many tutoring companies are essentially being forced to become nonprofits and will be banned from raising money through public listings. Yeah, they banned it altogether. Foreign investors are also barred from operating or holding stakes in such businesses and current violators of the rule must make changes, which means you got to write down your investment, baby. They're clearly showing who's boss. It's the CCP. It's not private enterprise. It's not big tech in China. It's the CCP. We have seen as a result this decline in Chinese venture capital investing. It's still up from where it was in 2019, but relative to the rest of the world, it's declining. Whereas everyone else, it's actually increasing. It's not like the Chinese VC industry has just been eradicated, but certainly asking a lot of soul-searching questions and certainly rethinking how and where they're going to invest. And maybe they're actually trying now because they've got so much money to actually diversify and invest outside of China. But taking money outside of China is also a big no-no. You know, the one saving grace I would say about the amount of money we've printed in the United States, $10 trillion, is that China's been printing way more money than we've been printing. The rumor is that it could be 3x uh, what we've been printing. And they've been printing it a lot longer than just, you know, since COVID. I don't know if this instills any additional confidence, but they're running a bigger Ponzi scheme than we're running a Ponzi scheme, just for the record. And if you make a bunch of money in China, but you can't take that money out of China, did you still make a bunch of money? Or did you just get bamboozled out of your money that now has to stay in China forever? I don't know. I'll let you answer that. Thank you very much for joining us on Winner Take All. I will talk to you soon.